Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Vox Media is looking for a principal designer for their platform group. And you can work out of their NYC or DC offices as well as remotely. Also starting this month, we've included job postings from Indeed.com for full-time positions across a number of different titles. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again about our Holiday Gift Guide Contest. We just published our Holiday Gift Guide a few days ago, so make sure you go check that out. Just go to revisionpath.com, click the banner at the top of the page, it'll take you right there. There's a lot of goodies in this year's gift guide, and you've got the chance to win an item of your choice from it. So go through, check out the gift guide, then once you get to the bottom of the page, fill out that short form. That contest is going to end on December 15th, so go ahead and get your entry in today. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp just recently improved their automation feature, so you can do some really cool things like those automatic drip campaigns where you send out an email every day or so. Those are really popular. You can also connect it with shopping cart software, too. So sign up today, get that free account. It's at MailChimp.com. Do you need a new domain for your next website or project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today, use the promo code SPREADLOVE, and save 10% off your purchase. We have a new review on iTunes. I'm so excited about this. I always love reading these reviews. This one comes from one of our Patreon patrons, J. Diane Riffle. Uh, the review is titled, Wonderful and Much Needed. Here it goes. Maurice Cherry is giving us such a wonderful resource with this podcast. I love that he is intentionally showcasing black designers and never avoids saying that is what he's doing. As a designer of color concerned with inclusivity and diversity in the field, I want to support his work and others like it because these perspectives and voices need to be uplifted by the mainstream design culture. Thank you, Maurice. Wow, thank you so much for that amazing review. I mean, I really, really, really appreciate hearing that. And it's good to know that other designers of color out there are paying attention and getting value from the show. So thank you again so much for leaving that wonderful review on iTunes. Speaking of Patreon, here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. We're still holding steady at 27 patrons right now for a combined total of $192 per month. Again, a huge thanks to all of you out there who have already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. It really means a lot. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, 
early access to future episodes, and free Revision Pass swag. I know a couple of uh, Patreon patrons are receiving their free t-shirts this week, so that's really awesome. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. Now for this week's interview, I talked with product designer Justin Edmond. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, so I'm Justin Edmond. You might have seen me on the internet as Jedmond. I am a product designer based out of San Francisco. Previously, I was a the first design hire at Pinterest, which is a visual bookmarking site on the internet that you may or may not have heard of. Um, I was there for four years, and I recently left to kind of explore the world and see where else I could have impact. And before that, I was a student at Carnegie Mellon University School of Design as a communication design major. And that's in Pittsburgh, where I was born and raised in New York City. Yeah, I know when we first sort of talked before we got everything scheduled, you were in Tokyo. Yes. How was Tokyo? Tokyo is great. I've been there twice this year because I've just been like, whatever, I can. But I have a lot of friends out in Tokyo. I've studied Japanese for a really long time. So, you know, I I try to go out there and hang out with my friends. It's also just a really awesome city to hang out in and and explore because you literally never run out of things to do. The Japanese countryside is like extraordinarily beautiful. But yeah, my first trip was out in May and I was there for a month hanging out. I did a little bit of work for Pinterest out there and a lot of it was really just hanging out and This last trip in October was mostly just like making connections and figuring out like if my next thing ends up being in Tokyo, how do I make that happen? But yeah. Is that, I guess that's sort of on the list now since you say you're no longer at Pinterest. Yeah. Things are opening up. Would you move to Tokyo? I'm considering it. We'll see. It's one of my many big considerations right now around like, all right, what am I going to be doing and then where am I going to be doing it? Mm Mm-hmm. So Tokyo's on the list. Staying in San Francisco is obviously a consideration. And then going back to New York is another one. And I'm kind of wrestling between the pros and cons in each of those decisions right now. Okay. I want to sort of talk about that, I guess, a little bit later. But I want to go back. I want to go way back (laughs) into time. And I think for most of the people that are listening to this show, they will appreciate this bit of sort of a cultural touchstone. So... 1996. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you were what, like four or five years old? 96, I was five. Or you were five? Well, it depends on when, but I was five or six. Okay. Now, one thing that, you know, people might not know, you know, of course they know you from Pinterest, is that you were an actor. You were a child actor. Yes, it is a very closely guarded secret. <laughs> <laughs> and in 1996, you were in the movie The Preacher's Wife. Yep. With a pantheon of black celebrity, Denzel Washington, Courtney B. Vance, Gregory Hines, Jennifer Lewis, Sissy Houston, Loretta Devine, Lionel Richie, of course, Whitney Houston. What was that experience like for you? Do you remember a lot of kind of what was going on during that time? So it's kind of funny because most people's memories kind of start when they're around, like, you know, like. People have memories, but like once you grow up, like your memories kind of start when you're like four or five years old. So Uh literally my first memories are the preacher's wife. I remember very little before that. Wow. But I mean, it was 
I think that that was overall a very good experience. It was very weird because, you know, I was just starting school, right, like four or five years old. And then I ended up getting pulled out of school to do homeschooling to do this shoot that took a really, really long time. I think it was like six, seven months. But I mean, everyone was incredibly friendly from what I can remember. Like it took a while, but I don't really have any like bad memories about it. Again, I was also like five. (laughs) Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, like we filmed it mostly in New York and New Jersey. I had a really close relationship at the time with Denzel Washington and Whitney Houston, both of them. More so actually Denzel than Whitney, but it was a really interesting time in my life. And it was one of the first times in my life. So, (laughs) but yeah, I don't know. Nice. What do you remember about Denzel and Whitney or any of the other stars? And I promise this is not like oh, no, full no. celebrity idolatry. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna actually talk about no, stuff, but I'm just curious to, to touch on that um, first. Yeah, it's it's weird to talk about, and it's also hard to talk about because it's like, yeah, that happened. I don't know how much I remember about it. So with Denzel, I was able to read when I was really young, which is partially why I was selected to for that role is because I could read the script and I could read any changes to the script and I didn't have to memorize. Well, I had to memorize the lines, but you know, like with child actors that young, typically, you know, their parents have to like tell them what the lines are and they have to memorize them and it's a huge back and forth. But since I could just read them and memorize them on my own, I didn't really have that same difficulty. So I think it probably made me a little bit easier to work with or something. I don't know. That's what my mom told me. But (laughs) with Denzel specifically, one of the things that I remember the most is that he used to give me like impromptu spelling quizzes. So he would just like say a word or like a street Uh name that we were filming on or something. And And ask you to spell it. Tell me to spell it. Yeah. And like we would just do this. There's only one word that I ever couldn't spell and it was the name of some street we were filming on in new jersey and i wouldn't be able to tell you what it is now but it was really fun and i remember a little bit less about whitney i do remember going into her trailer once and like hanging out there for a little bit with my mom but obviously she was a lot busier because she had all sorts of other stuff going on too but you know i had a a really good working relationship with courtney vance too with really a lot of them they're all really really nice to me and you know i was being homeschooled on set and there really weren't that many other kids my age. There was one kid that was a stand-in for me, and we became friends. And our parents talked for many years after the filming was done. But beyond him, there were very few that were there regularly, you know, because there, there are lots of kids in that movie, but they didn't have parts that kind of spanned throughout the whole movie. So there would be kids there for like, you know, a day or two or like a week or two at a time, which for me was okay because I wasn't really that into kids my age anyway. Like I was just like, you're just going to break my toys. (laughs) And they did. That happened many times. But, you know, like because of that, I ended up having to spend a lot more time. And, you know, I wasn't in school, so I didn't have my friends from outside of school. I wasn't auditioning for anything else at the time. So I spent a lot more time with the adults on set, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so eventually you you know you transition out of acting. We'll fast forward a couple of years like into high school because you went to the famous LaGuardia High School which for people that are listening that's 
that's the school that the movie Fame was based off of. Uh, Debbie Allen. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about your time there. What was it like? You were a vocal yes. student, right? Vocal student, vocal major, something like that? Yeah. So the first LaGuardia does this thing where you have to interview to get in. And so or interview audition to get in for no matter what major you're doing there. So they have vocal music, instrumental music, drama, dance, and fine arts. And they also had a like a theater tech thing, but it was much, much smaller than all the other ones. And the first time I interviewed coming out of middle school, I did drama and vocal music. There were things that my mom wanted me to do. I wasn't really super into it. I didn't get in. I went to this other school that literally was across the street for a year. It was a brand new school. It was the first year that it was open. I mean, it was a science school. And I was just like, eh, I don't know if I'm feeling this. So I interviewed again for vocal music and art. I got in for both. In some ways, I probably should have done art, but I didn't. <laughs> I was going to ask, like, is this around the time that you sort of got the, the notion for design as um, a profession? So I always was, I mean... I didn't really know that design was a profession until much later, actually. Okay. I was always really interested in the internet. My dad and my uncle are both huge nerds. Like, my uncle was super into Windows PCs. My dad was super into Mac. So I had really early exposure to both. I had my first PC when I was, like, three or four. But I was always really interested in the internet. I was interested in, like, internet communities. And so a lot of of what I was interested in was like making stuff for that. But I didn't realize that that was, and I don't think anyone really realized that that would be a profession that someone could do with their lives. So it was just like, that was what I did on the side. So I went to school for vocal music. So I was like, well, I guess I'm okay at this. And it's not really that bad. I do like music. At that point, I was fairly alienated from acting. I kind of, I quit that in middle school and I went for vocal music, but what I say is all of my friends were art majors and it's true. Like the vast majority, I didn't really fit in with the people that were vocal music majors in, in my classes. They were all really outgoing and really extroverted and like they'd sing in the hallways and like, I just wanted to draw stuff. So I did. <laughs> so all of my friends were illustrators and we would draw stuff. We would like work on our websites together, but a lot of them used deviant art, which this was kind of like the beginning of like my product sense, I guess. But I was like, DeviantArt is terrible. Like, why would you, why would you use that? <laughs> like, you know, like I understand it's easy, but like everything's this weird, ugly green and like you can't really personalize it. And I really wanted them to make websites for themselves. And they just weren't interested in the idea of learning HTML and CSS. And I had dabbled with coding before. I had dabbled with making websites before with one of my online friends who did the design for me and like, I would slice it up and kind of like put it on the internet and update it. But that was kind of like, you know, WordPress had just come out. So I was just like, all right, I'm going to make websites for all of you. And so like every month I was just making a website for someone else and telling them how to update it and all that stuff. And, you know, obviously none of them were really like masterpieces, but that was kind of my introduction to web design and how I started mm -hmm. doing that. And, you know, by that point, it was very, very clear that I wasn't going to be a, a vocal musician or like go to Juilliard or something like that and like continue that career, no matter how much my mom wanted me to. So I started looking at design programs because I was like, maybe this web design thing is a thing that I can do. And of course, there are no web design programs at any real school in whatever year that was, 2007, I think. 
So I ended up applying to lots of graphic design programs. And, you know, I only applied to five schools and it was a split between illustration programs and graphic design programs. But I ended up picking Carnegie Mellon and doing their communication design program. And I was like, what is that? But I went there and I heard one of the, I guess he was the head of the school at the time. I heard him talk and I was like, actually, this sounds pretty cool. I'm kind of into this. So I went there and I was like, any web type stuff that I want to do, you know, I'm going to have to have some sort of design foundation to do that. So maybe I can just do this program and apply it and figure out how to get into like internet stuff later. What was the program like? It's a really good program. It is really small. So every year is only 50 kids. And by the second year, you split up into two groups of about 25, but usually industrial design, which is the other major gets a little bit more. So it might be like 30, 20 or like 32, 18. So the class sizes are really small for the design program, at least other it's a university. So there's all sorts of stuff. And Carnegie Mellon is known for the computer science programs and all of that. But you know, the, the program, the first year, you're not even using computers at all. It's very, very focused on design thinking and design theory more so than the practical aspects of design. Like you're not going to go to that program and learn how to be like a badass at Photoshop or illustrator Mm -hmm. or InDesign or any of the programs really, because that's just not at first, as a student, you're just like, what the heck? Like, I'm going to have to learn how to use these programs to get a job. But once you graduate, you realize, you know, you can learn that stuff anytime. But the the foundation that CMU teaches you, which is, you know, like the design process stuff, design thinking stuff, how to actually, like, go about problems in a way that lets you really rapidly iterate and come up with lots and lots of ideas. And, mm-hmm. you know, interviewing people and working for like certain constituents or multiple constituents like all that stuff is stuff that is much more crucial than how to like you know make a a website in photoshop or in sketch or whatever right and so i actually really appreciated that because you know like how you do it isn't really important it's like well how you execute it isn't important but how you actually think about the problem and how you go about solving it is a much harder skill to pick up but a lot of the curriculum is around stuff like that and it's around you know building like skills like patience and like (laughs) give like (laughs) learning how to give and receive critique and like knowing when something is done there are all sorts of classes where you're just like i don't know why we're doing this like why are we making these books right now and then you know a little bit after the project's done you're like wait i understand why we did that thing like there's very clear reasons for everything that they do but it's never to build like those hard kind of like manual labor parts of design skills. I guess that program really then kind of prepared you for going right into the startup world. Cause you said it teaches you these, these other sorts of, I guess it's good things to know, like patience and perseverance and iteration, because not long after you graduated Carnegie Mellon, you started at Pinterest. Like they recruited you pretty much right out of school. Yeah. Yeah. Carnegie Mellon is more and more. I mean, it's been known for it, but even more so now for putting out designers that are really well equipped to work in, you know, these high octane, like crazy startup environments. Like when I graduated my year, there were maybe four of us that went straight into tech out of 50. And now I'm looking at the people that graduate and like what jobs they go to. And like, it's just 
larger and larger numbers like almost the whole class immediately goes and tries to find like interaction design jobs or product design jobs facebook and microsoft are really heavily recruiting from there and for good reason i mean like if you if you're a company that needs designers and has a lot of money like it's a really great place to start because people generally can be productive from day one but you kind of get to shape these designers into the designers that you want them to be right like mid and senior designers that have product design experience are really rare. So the approach that a lot of these larger companies are taking are finding junior designers and kind of giving them the extra training that they need in order to be productive. But Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a money loser, right? Because for the first year or two, they're just not going to be productive at all from traditional schools because it's just like, all right, there's a whole bunch of stuff we have to teach you. And we know that you're you're going to be able to get there because we picked you, but you know, you're still not really getting a whole ton of productivity out of them. But I think that like CMU students typically are like a little bit farther along on that trajectory from the moment they graduate, just because of how the program is structured and the, the skills that they end up teaching you. So you, you got hired right out of college. You were working at Pinterest. When you first started working there, because you were their first mm-hmm. design hire that you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. did you relish that? Depends on what you mean by relish. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was, I was scared out of my mind, but I think that actually fear is the, the primary thing that I felt for the first like month or two, because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is really like, you know, I had interned at Facebook the summer before, so I had some idea of what was expected of me, but it was still a lot faster and a lot more intense than I had imagined. Like we were literally living the startup life where like we could have just been in a garage. We we're essentially in a garage. Like we were in this living room of this house in Palo Alto and it was tiny and it was like five dudes and one girl and it smelled awful and it was dark all the time. But yeah, I mean, like it was definitely the startup dream. And I was like, holy crap, I have student loans. What if this thing goes under like next month? I will be screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Real talk. That's real. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. It's just like, I don't know what I'll like. This thing is tiny and I don't know what I'm going to do if it doesn't work out. But I don't think that I mean, I I still don't really think that I relished it as much as I as probably other people would have. I mean, to me, it was just like a job and a position. And, you know, like it was your first job out of school. You know, yeah, you're like you said, you're kind of thinking like I got to pay the bills. It's not really sort of, I guess, savoring the moment for what it is. But, you know, what they say hindsight is 2020. So, yeah, for sure. You might get further along in your career and you're like, yeah, I was the first design hire at Pinterest. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So. What are some of the things that when you worked at Pinterest, you were really responsible for that are, I guess, still parts of Pinterest now? So a lot of what I worked on were was like new feature development. So there would be a thing that the co-founders would be like, hey, this is a, a thing that we think will be a valuable add to not even just the co-founders, either from them or from some PM or an engineer or even from me. Right. Like this is a thing that would be valuable for us to build. And especially in the early days, it was just like, well, I've got to design it. Right. Like I've got to maintain that. But, you know, like the designers at Pinterest are really responsible for the kind of like the ecosystem and how all of the different pieces interconnect and the logic behind like why certain things are the way that they are. And like when we make something new, like how does that logic change or how does that thing fit into this broader system 
that is Pinterest, right? But I was primarily the designer that went and built new features for a number of years. So I built the first analytics platform for people that were kind of using Pinterest for business. I built secret boards, which lets people pin things that are kind of like not private, but only they can see it. Right. Only they can see it. And usually there are things like weddings or like, hey, I'm having a baby. I don't want anyone to know yet. Or I'm planning my kid's birthday party, that kind of stuff. I did Rich Pins. Rich Pins is a system that is at the core of Pinterest monetization efforts today, where essentially we gather a bunch of data about different entities that exist in the real world and attach that data to any pins about that entity. So if you think of like that pair of slippers from Target, when you pin it, we instantly know whether or not Target has it in stock and what the current price is. If it goes on sale, we can send you a notification. I built place pins, which is kind of an extension of that service where if there's a place in the world, you can pin it and your board gets a map. And on the map, you can see all of the places that you pin. So if you're planning a trip, you can kind of like plan like, oh, this day is going to be over here and this day is going to be over here. And like, I've got the phone number for this place. I can get to direction straight from Pinterest. But Richmond does that for all sorts of different entities, for apps now, for movies, for products, I said, for recipes as well. And the team is always like explores new avenues that we can kind of like gather data about and make pins more useful with. So I built that whole system, and that was one of the bigger things that I worked on there. But, you know, like, these aren't really, like, purely visual design endeavors. Like, they're actually kind of the opposite. I mean, that's kind of the world in which I thrive. Like, sure, I can do visual design. I have done visual design, and I'll continue to. But really what I think that I'm good at is, like, building out these systems and figuring out what makes a product that people understand and what that makes sense to them. Like, how do we kind of fit this thing into our system and how do we craft a narrative about it much more than what it looks like? There's a lot of what it looks like stuff going on at Pinterest, and I was very rarely the person that was doing it, <laughs> partially because it's just not the thing that I find super exciting. And I'm also just not as good as it, at it. Like, I'm the first to admit that there's much better visual designers than me in the world. <laughs> Well, it's good that you're able to kind of work on something that is used by millions and millions of people and really kind of put your own thumbprint on it. Uh, yeah. And it's still used it's, today. I mean, that's a big accomplishment. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> so you mentioned, you know, at the top of the show that you're no longer at Pinterest. No, I'm not. Uh, so when did you leave Pinterest? I left in the beginning of August. So it's been around three. I think that actually today might be three years or okay. uh, something like that. But not three years, three months. I think I said three okay. years. But it's been three months. I've just been kind of hanging out, trying to figure out what's next. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, uh, international travel aside, of course. <laughs> like, what's the next step? What do you think you, you'll be doing? So while I was at Pinterest, one of the, I always was working on side projects. I always encourage people to work on side projects because it keeps you fresh, I think. But there's a lot of things that I you know, come up with and products I'd love to see exist that don't, right? And while I was in, you know, an environment, when you're in an environment like Pinterest, you just don't have time to give things the attention that they deserve. So a lot of what I think I'm going to be doing now is kind of pursuing those things, seeing what happens with them, 
I throw it around the uh, term starting a company. I don't really have an ambition to run a company. I have an ambition to build products. And if that's the way that I have to do it, then fine. But that's kind of where my head is at right now. How do I make these things real? And how do I learn from them and become a better like designer and product thinker by doing that? Because the thing about working at in an environment like Pinterest is just like, Failure isn't an option, right? Like you can't fail. There's too much writing on it. So everything has to be perfect out the gate. Right. And I think that what I found was that I know that I learn a lot from failing and like trying stuff and failing and trying stuff again. One of the reasons why I left was just that like that wasn't an environment in which I could do that because I mean, it makes mm. sense, right? Like you don't want this huge company to fail just because you want to try some crazy shit. But now that I'm kind of like on my own, I've got my my product ideas, I've got many of them, and I can, you know, go out and say, I'm going to do this thing, and if no one signs up for it, like, it's totally fine, right? Like, I can learn from that experience and figure out how to evolve my thinking to kind of do it better next time. That's where I am right now, and I'll probably, you know, like, be freelancing on the side, but a lot of the the where involved is like, you know, like, where would be the best place for me to start this thing and where would it be best for me to kind of like do these experiments and kind of like explore these new areas of products and whatnot. So I want to touch on diversity in technology and the re main reason I want to touch on it one, I saw it in your Twitter bio, but secondly, because, <laughs> <laughs> but secondly, there was this piece that was in USA today that was sort of based off of, a medium article that you wrote last year. And in that piece, it said, you know, due to many factors, this is also the first time that I really thought about them. And that's, you know, race, diversity, or discrimination, mm -hmm. specifically kind of tied into the events that happened in Ferguson. And that have since happened, I think, in the country since then. Yeah. And you said that what Ferguson has taught me is that no matter how I distance myself from my identity, my race or racism as a twisted, societally prescribed mechanism of self-defense, there are people in the world that will never see past the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, I guess, the diversity in tech conversation, and particularly what we've seen, I think, in the past year or so with people of color kind of vocally coming out about what it's like working at some of these places, the kind of toxic culture or, or the environment that kind of breeds... I mean I think that it impacted how I think about everything that I do. Like I've never before that I didn't really think about stuff like that. I was just like, oh, well, you know, that's a problem, but it's not affecting me. I'm not going to go into that. But, you know, it does affect me in, in some way. Right. Like it's, it's affecting me by not affecting me in a way. Well, that's like the common sentiment overall. Right? right. I mean, not just from you or for people of color, but like in general, it's well, this problem doesn't affect me personally. Therefore, why should I care about right, it? Right. Exactly. But after that and after the support that I got for after writing that article, I was just like, well, you know, this actually is affecting me in some way. And I'm actually in a position to do something about it for lots of other people. And like I said, like, you don't really have a lot of time to do stuff when you're in an environment like Pinterest. And I'm very, very good at like, disappearing into the background. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good at disappearing. But you know, now that I actually do have free time, and I actually have energy and, and cycles to kind of think about all sorts of things. One of the things, you know, beyond where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do for a living, like, it's just like, how can I help people yeah. that want to get into tech or help people that 
don't want to get into tech but are still just underprivileged and even how can that integrate into the whole you know what am i going to do narrative and like that whole like decision tree and i don't know what it is yet it could be that i go volunteer somewhere it could be that i write more it could be that you know i do start a company and i try to go the tristan walker route and like build something that's like really focused on diversity some of the product ideas that i've been thinking of like i'm i've been thinking about like cool like this is an avenue to make money but how can i like make it so that this one thing like essentially i can give back at the same time it's actually very possible with one of the products that i'm mulling over but it's something that like permeates everything that i think about and i haven't really quite figured out the solution yet i think about things for a very long time before i come to solutions but it's important to me and i think that it wasn't necessarily important to me before well it sounds like it was good that this made you kind of more aware not just as as a person but also as a designer you did an AMA, which is, is uh, short for Ask Me Anything. You did an AMA with Designer News right around the same time last year. Mm-hmm. And something that you said there had stuck out to me. You said that designers have the ability to solve problems that actually will change the world. It's just that many of us either can't find those opportunities or choose to make photo apps instead. Do you still feel that way? <laughs> yeah, I made a Twitter rant about this like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> It was very polarizing, actually. I do think that. I think that there's a lot of really, and, you know, like through talking to people on Twitter yesterday, I realized that, you know, there's various reasons why people make the photo apps of the world. And it's mostly because VCs like photo apps, right? Mm -hmm. Or messaging apps or all sorts of like things that are just like, it doesn't matter. Like no one needs another one. And, you know, like maybe it is some designer that's amazingly talented, but has student loans or like has a kid and they have to support their family, right? Like, and I think that that's a really valid point of view. But at the same time, I do know people that definitely have not necessarily made it yet that worked at, you know, companies that are like health startups or something, right? Like things that aren't necessarily the beaten path and have been successful there. So it's a real double-edged sword. I mean, I think that, so for example, for a, a hot second, someone at Pinterest looped me into, he was mentoring some college kids out of Berkeley. And they were working on an app. I, I had no clue what to expect. And I go in and they explain their app to me. They were working on an app for underprivileged people that were essentially living on food stamps. And this app was an app that let almost like Instacart, it let them shop on their phones or presumably on a computer as well for their groceries. And the app knew, like, you know, like what their allotment was, like how many food stamps they got. I have no clue how that whole system works, but apparently, you know, you can only buy certain amounts of certain types of things. So like for grains, you might only get like, I don't even know, like 800 grams of grains. I I don't know if that's a lot or not, but I'm just throwing numbers out there. Right. Or like, Mm -hmm. so what people have to do is I have to go to the store and they have to look at the nutritional facts and see how much is in this package and kind of like do the math themselves around like, am I getting too much? Or they get to the register and they find out they have to pay extra for this thing that they wanted or something might be categorized really weirdly. It's a mess. But instantly I was like, holy shit, like this is a problem that technology can totally solve really easily. And apparently the way that all these systems work is different from state to state. So like they were working on something only for California, but you know, like there's an opportunity for someone to make a national company that makes some app that kind of like 
deals with the intricacies of each of these systems, right? And like figures out how to actually tangibly make these people's lives better. Like the app had like a schedule a pickup thing where like you scheduled a window where you could go to the store and pick up the groceries. You didn't have to like spend your time as someone that's underprivileged and, you know, every hour that you can work is really going to help you survive. You don't have to spend the hours going to the store and like having to waste your time figuring out all of this nonsense when all you need is to get food for your family for the next week, right? And it's just like, why isn't there a company doing that? Or if there is, where are they, right? Like, where is the designer that's working on that stuff? And it's like, cool, like, there's a lot of people, some of my good friends included, that are just like, you know, I don't like how much people emphasize how much I, impact I should be making. But it's just like, it's great to have fun. But as a designer, like there, you could be doing so much to help people's lives, people that are like less privileged than you. It's like, why wouldn't you want to do that, right? And so for me, it's, it's a frustrating point, right? Because I think that designers have, especially in the atmosphere today, so much power to do so many things, mm-hmm. but they don't. And part of it is a discovery problem. It's very hard to find those opportunities, but you know, when you do, jumping on them shouldn't really be something that you think for like months over, right? It should be like super cool. Another example is there's a a company that I've been hanging out with in San Francisco. And what they're doing is a little bit different. They essentially are making tools for city planners to more efficiently route public transportation. So essentially, it's software that lets you make bus routes and understand the demographic implications of the routes that you make. So they're telling me that right now, the way that these city planners have operated is they get a big table and a big map of their region, and they get some tracing paper and they just draw the routes that they want. And then they go and they go to a computer and they have to pull all the data around like who lives in that area and like mm-hmm. what their like economic status is and like where the jobs are and like do all of that work literally by hand <laughs> and it takes months. Yeah. And so what this company has made is something that literally takes that entire process and condenses it down into something that literally will take you like 30 minutes to plan a route, understand like the implications of this route based on like they pull in all the demographic data, they pull in and they do all sorts of calculations around like, cool, this is how long it takes for this person to get to the bus stop, get on the bus and get to work or like this is how far they can work and still be happy, right? Like all sorts of really cool things like that. I mean, I think that they're doing really well. I don't know anything about like financials, but they're, you know, they're working in, they have trials in all sorts of different cities around the world. And it's just like, that's also something really cool, right? Like you're impacting people's lives, not necessarily directly, but public transportation is a huge thing for people that are underprivileged. And if you can't get to your job easily, you're either not going to work there or you're going to have to spend even more money on like a car and gas and all this other stuff where if, you know, city planners had something that were that was really efficient, they could think about this kind of stuff, right? And so I think that like there's an abundance of really big meaty problems that are out there that designers can go and like really just knock out of the park, yeah. but they have to want to do it, right? They have to be okay with the fact that it's not going to be something they're going to get like 200 likes on Dribble about. And it's not going to be something that they're going to get a ton of like clout with their friends by working on. Because it's not going to be something their friends care about. Yeah, and it's not going to be like that, that sexy not, project not that they're working yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. 
and I think that like, you know, like with the advent of dribble, there's definitely like much more of a social aspect and like a, a voyeuristic aspect to the design that we do and the design that we make. Everyone wants to make like the sexiest thing. It's just like, it doesn't matter. Like <laughs> it really just doesn't matter. It's much more important and much more rewarding in the long run to work on the thing that really no one else is working on, right? Because you own that space, right? Like you can do whatever you want and you can like really actually make people's lives better in while you're doing it. Yeah, I would say that there's a lot that designers can do specifically around like city policies and things of that nature. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Dr. Dory Tunstall. She leads Swinburne's Masters of Design program in design anthropology in Melbourne, Australia. And she's from the U.S., but she's also the organizer of the U.S. National Design Policy, which mm. I didn't even know existed. I, I didn't know that what is. the U.S. <laughs> had a design. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, did, I had no idea that was a, a thing. And so I asked her, well, like, how can designers get involved in something like that? And she said, you know, you kind of be surprised. Well, of course, for people listening, go and listen to the interview. But she said, you know, you'd be surprised at ways that designers can help out on the city level by just going to a city council meeting and like talking to the person that's over their district or over their council about, you know, ways to, I don't know, redesign ballots or make flyers or things like that. And again, it's not like this big, sexy kind of project, but these are ways that you're using design to affect civic change on, on just a tiny level that can have bigger, you know, implications and things like that. Yeah, totally. I think that there's a lot of opportunity So one resource that I use is there's really great folks at this organization here in San Francisco called the Designer Fund, started by Ben Blumenfeld and Enrique Allen. And their whole mission is to connect companies to designers and designers to companies and industries that don't traditionally have design. And so, you know, they do that in in various ways, but they're very receptive to people just like reaching out and being like, hey, I'm a designer. Like, how can I get involved in Silicon Valley or like, how can I work on things that are, you know, more impactful than whatever it is that I'm working on right now. I'm lucky. I've been friends with them for many, many years. Ben worked at Facebook while I was an intern there. We worked together a lot. The two organizations, you know, Pinterest and the designer fund worked together a lot and I've helped them with some of their stuff, but they're really, really good at kind of hunting down opportunities for designers based on, you know, like what kinds of things they're interested in. They run a program called Bridge, which you might have heard of, which essentially tries to get designers in other industries into tech. And they have a bunch of partner companies. And the way that it works is you kind of like put your website in a system and like write a little bit about yourself. And then companies will go through and say like, okay, cool. Like we want to interview these three people and they'll give one or two of them a kind of like a grown-up internship where you go work there for three months they pay you like a normal salary and most of the time it turns into a full-time job but it's really just like a way for companies to try out new designers and designers to try out lots of companies in different areas and like you know they meet once a week and they talk about stuff and they have like speakers like popular designers or like successful designers in the valley will go and talk about like either how to do a certain thing or how to think about a certain thing or just like their experiences and they're not even necessarily designers or they've brought in like writers and coaches and all sorts of stuff like that but it's it's a really good program are you where you thought you would be right now in your life or, or are you further <laughs> than you thought you would be 
I think I'm further than I thought I would be. Okay. So when I joined Pinterest, I, I always told myself, if this thing works out, <laughs> there's no guarantee that it will, that when I left, I would start my own company. And I expected that to take a lot longer than it did. Mm-hmm. Just because I was just like, well, you know, like, A, this thing might not work out. <laughs> that was kind of the first hurdle. Yeah. But then, you know, like, when I left, I was just like, I'm not ready to start a company. And I thought about that for a little while. So I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what is the first thing that I do. I still don't know what the first thing that I do is. But I'm very, very bad with uncertainty. I'm the kind of person that I don't act until I'm almost 100% sure that things are going to work out the way that I want them to. And in some ways, that's a great trait. But in a lot of ways, it's also a really bad trait because it means that there's times where I could be doing something that I just don't do it because I don't know what's going to happen. So instead of waiting until I knew exactly what my path was to do what I wanted to do, I just quit. (laughs) I was just like, this is the only way that I'm ever going to become okay with the uncertainty of not knowing what comes next is by throwing myself into it. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of working, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lot less scared about it and more just like, how do I do this? But I never expected that after four years I would be in a position where I could do this, right? Like, sure, it's scary. I don't really know if it's the right thing to do. But I didn't think that I would be able to, after just four years at Pinterest, like put myself in this position, right? Like, it's it's a fairly privileged position to be able to put myself into, And yeah, I mean, like I had no clue what was going to happen even when I joined even like a year ago. So it's very weird. (laughs) I know you've done a lot of great work at Pinterest. You know, you mentioned, you know, the rich pins and the the place pins and things like that. But in general, in everything that you've done up to this point, have you had the opportunity to show how good you are or has that not come yet? You think? What does that mean? (laughs) What do you think it means? (laughs) I mean, I think that there's a lot of things that the answer might be no. (laughs) Okay. And when I say that, what I mean is that do you feel that you've had that opportunity to really just sort of cut loose on something? No. Because, you know, when you're working with a company, you are often working with in particular constraints and, and, you know, certain things for your audience and things like that. And when I say, like, have you had the opportunity to show how good you are? Have you really just had the chance to just, like, do your own thing and really just go as far as you can go with it to the stratosphere. No, not yet. And okay. I think that that's a lot of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Because like I said, like it's not those like Pinterest, Facebook, Twitter, all those places, they're not really places where maybe like a Facebook, they're making money. They're not really places where <laughs> failure is an option. Uh-huh. But I think that the best things only come after you failed a few times. I don't know. Facebook has failed a few times. I mean, maybe not. They have. I, yeah, they yeah, they have, yeah. Times. That's true. But at the same time, like Facebook works, right? Like Facebook makes a ton of money. Yeah. They have the space to fail. They have the space to fail, exactly. And with a lot of smaller companies, that's not necessarily the case. Right. But I think that there's a lot of things that, like, I guess the what it comes down to is I trust my gut and I see that my gut is usually right, but other people don't trust my gut, right? And so it's a lot of what. I'd like to do is build things that kind of tell other people, hey, like I act like this guy actually knows what he's talking about sometimes, Mm -hmm. not all the time, not most of the time, even, but sometimes. 
And I think that the only way that I could do that is kind of going out and putting myself in a position where I'm allowed to fail, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm allowed to try crazy things and like just see what happens when I do that. Because, you know, like at the end of the day, like, sure, I I worked at Pinterest for four years, but I've also only worked for four years. Right. Like I'm still. Right. Exactly. I was thinking that like you you got just (laughs) right out of college. Yeah. like And and you can sort of fall into that trap of having Pinterest define who you are as a designer. Right. Yeah. And I mean, like people send me like (laughs) interview requests where they're like, we want you to be the design director at our company. I'm like, I'm not a design director. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Even out of school, people are like, yeah, we want you to be like the sole designer at this small startup. And I'm like, no, like there has to be some other designer there. Or otherwise, I'm just going to fuck shit up. And like, is that a lot of pressure? Is what a lot of pressure? I mean, when those types of things come in and they want you at these sort of lofty positions like that. No, it's not. I mean, I don't think of it as a lot of pressure because I'm not going to do them, but. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like if someone tells me like hey we want you to be the design director of this thing I'm not gonna say yes because i know that that's like way over my head i mean i mean like it's not i could do it but it's not like i'd like there to be some sort of progression you know yeah oddly enough i feel much more comfortable starting my own company than i do being the design director for someone else's stuff because that makes me responsible if something goes wrong right in a yeah. way that like if it's my own thing, like, sure, I'm responsible, but, like, I was always responsible for everything, right? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, like, it's a weird thing. I'm not someone's design director. Like, that's not the thing that I'm going to do. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're, you know, if you go the entrepreneurship route, you're, you're what, 25? Yeah. Yeah, so you're in your mid-20s. This is a good time to do it now. Yeah, so, um, that's what I think, too. Yeah, and you, honestly, you have the cachet of, working for Pinterest, I mean, that does sort of work in your favor. If you say, oh, yeah, you know, former product designer at Pinterest starts his own company, of course, people are going to pay attention to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's that sort of like stereo, not stereotype, but there's that sort of, uh, it sort of works in your favor, I guess. I mean, it's clout. And the thing about clout is that you have to know how to work it without letting it go to your head. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I definitely plan on using that. But at the same time, I realized that like like a lot of my friends that I graduated with are like probably like mid-tier. Some of them are like senior designers at their companies. But, you know, like I don't want just because I worked at Pinterest doesn't make me the most amazing designer in the valley. Like there's many people that have worked many, many more years than me that have a lot of things to teach me and lots of other designers. And like just because Mm -hmm. like Pinterest isn't some golden bullet that makes me like amazing you know like i'm not (laughs) well speaking on that i guess what is the best advice that you've been given regarding design and what you do i mean i guess it's like i think it would be like somewhere along the lines of like staying humble right like it's very easy in san francisco especially to feel like you're like hot shit Lots of people will make you feel that way. And lots of, especially if you work at like one of the top tier companies like Airbnb or Pinterest or Uber or Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever, right? But it's important to always keep perspective of like where you are and what you've done, but also how far you have to go in order to like achieve your personal goals, whatever they are. Because there's also a lot of really, really like headstrong designers out here that think that they're amazing. And it's just like, yeah, but you also like started stagnating like how long ago because you, you couldn't accept that you weren't necessarily the best at your craft. Just because you get dribble likes doesn't make you an amazing designer. And I think that that's something that I always try to keep in mind. 
because it's very easy to lose sight of that, I think. Yeah. What motivates you? I don't know. I mean, I think that I'm motivated by the things that I'd like to see in the world and the world that I as I'd like it to exist. And, you know, the only person that can make that world that you have in your head is you. So, like, you just have to, like, keep going, <laughs> right? Like, it's an endless march forward. But there's a lot of stuff that could be better. And even if I'm not the person that makes it better, like, I'd like to at least be in a position where maybe I have an impact on the person that does. But, yeah, I don't know. Is there anyone out there that you admire or you look up to for for inspiration, like a mentor or something like that? I don't really have mentors. There are people that I think are doing good stuff. Like Tristan Walker's doing amazing work. Jack Dorsey's doing amazing work. Obama's friggin' amazing and a huge inspiration to me. But I mean, in terms of designers, like designers are designers. And like, I think that one of the things that actually child acting taught me was that people are people, right? Like, that's all uh-huh. they are. Like, no matter who they are, like, how far away they seem, like, they're just another bag of like flesh and bones and and red stuff so like there's not really a whole bunch of value in like idolizing someone but there's a lot of value in like getting yourself to a position where you can like have conversations with them and like figure out what makes them tick but yeah like one of the reasons that I actually quit child acting was because I didn't want to be the kind of person that people like put up on a pedestal just because of the stuff that I did or like Really? Zombie movies and stuff. Yeah, no, it's uh-huh. like it's so gross. Like I wanted to make an impact on society and make an impact on people's lives, but I didn't really know. In a positive way. In a positive, yeah, in a positive way. Yeah. That, and, you know, I realized that there's not a whole bunch of like notoriety in design, but I'm actually 100% okay with that. Like I want to make that impact and I don't want to be like idolized for stuff, right? Like I'm just a person, like there's nothing worth idolizing about any one individual i think i don't know well i say if you write a memoir you should call it flesh and bones and red stuff (laughs) (laughs) so i got i have a few kind of like i guess you can call these like lightning round questions three questions pretty simple so first question did you ever dream of being anything else yeah i dreamed about being a lot of stuff (laughs) i wanted to be an astronaut i wanted to be a train conductor i wanted to be a artist i wanted to for a while i really thought that i was going to be a comic book artist or at least i would have been really happy if that worked out but that's a really hard thing to make work but yeah i never thought i was going to be a designer that's literally the last thing i didn't even know design was a thing that people yeah (laughs) what are the best things that you owe your parents my parents are really supportive and i think that that is something that a lot of people don't have. My mom really wanted the child acting thing to work. She really wanted the singer thing to work because she really loves the entertainment business. She was in it herself for a little while. And she actually told me that the reason why she put me in it was because she knew that I like from early on that I was going to be a person that was like socially awkward and like didn't really enjoy talking to people that much. But she knew that like those were skills that were really important in order to succeed. And so she did that to me <laughs> put me in a situation where I always had to be talking to people and always had to like fight with like the fact that I didn't want to do it. But you know, there was one conversation we had where I was like, I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't do the things that you really wanted me to do. And she was like, no, it wasn't really about getting you to do that stuff. It was like about all of this other, these other things. And 
you know, she was always okay with whatever it was that I wanted to do. Like she made me do the stuff that she wanted me to do, but she never discouraged me from doing the things that I wanted to do. Like, you know, like a lot of parents would have been like, you want to go to art school? Like what's wrong with you? And she was just like, okay, cool. Like if you're going to go to art school, just make sure you go to the best one. (laughs) My dad similarly, like always like he was a tinkerer and like my uncle's a tinkerer and my grandfather's a tinkerer and so like being around them always made me want to just like tinker with stuff and like learn new things and do crazy stuff even if it was stupid but yeah now a little birdie told me that you were a leon le Havis fan <laughs> so you looked at my what is, what what is your favorite song oh yeah it's a little bird of course <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite song off the new album that's a hard question it's a really good album this has been a really good music year for me. What other music are you listening to? I mean, you can answer that after, like, which song you like. But Right now, I'm my curious. favorite song is Ghost, I think. I was, okay. I was going back and forth between them, but I think I like Ghost the most. There's a lot of, I mean, I'm a musician, so I notice all of the crazy musician stuff that people do in their songs. And, like, there's a lot of crazy musician stuff in that song around, like, how she interplays, like, the lyrics with the actual songs or, like, the actual instrumentation and, like, the round and round and, like, how, like, a lot of the guitars and all the different parts in the instrumentation at one point kind of make circles. Like I was thinking about this yesterday. It's just like, how do you make circles with sounds? But she did it and it's really, really cool. <laughs> but I bounced back and forth between lots of like lesser known, like American and British, like indie music. But I also listen to a lot of Japanese music and a lot of Japanese indie music like stuff that even people in Japan don't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. But the the common thread is like a lot of it is usually pretty jazzy, kind of solely. So one of, or at least like very well composed. Yeah. My favorite musician right now is a artist called, or named Haruka Nakamura. And he is a pianist and a guitarist. But a lot of his, this is like, it's not classical music, but it's, I don't really know how to describe it. Like it's all instrumentation or like choral music, but it's also just very serene and very calming. Then on the other hand, there's this uh, math rock band, which is like super energetic called Trico, which is this like three part band, all girls, like super like girl power kind of band. They're really awesome. And recently I've been listening to this other band called Petrols and they are kind of like a i would say like it's somewhere between rock jazz and funk but their album is really really great as well they released one like a month ago so i'm always on top of my music but i don't always have people to talk to about it because it's all over the place Uh (laughs) like any given day i could jump from like leanne will have to no sash thing which is like kind of like housey stuff to haruka nakamura to petrols or trico which are like these japanese like rock bands but music's a really important part of my life, I guess, obviously. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to kind of bring that, I guess, you know, like full circle. Yeah. I would say if you want to hear her, she did a podcast this summer. Oh, really? With uh, Yeah, she did it with BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed has several podcasts, but they have one called Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. Okay. And it's episode 18. Uh, they interview Leanne Lahava. Uh, Le she's on there and she answers questions about her music and i think tracy asks her 
if she likes squirrels or something like that. <laughs> Tracy always asks everyone about squirrels, but yeah, That's awesome. check that out. Yeah. So just to kind of wrap things up, I mean, we have ran the gamut and talked about a lot of different things, but where can people find you online and, and sort of follow the work you're doing and see what your next steps are going to be? I am very active on Twitter. Jedman, J-E-D-M-U-N-D is my handle there and pretty much any other social platform that you might be looking for me on. My website is jedman.com. But, you know, I'm friendly, so you can send me messages and stuff, and I, I typically respond. But, yeah, Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, whatever. Look me up. You'll find me. <laughs> Very easy to find. All right. Well, sounds good, man. Justin Edmund, thank you again so much for taking time out of your day to come on the show. It was really good to hear about, you know, the work that you've done at Pinterest. I mean, just from like a, I guess, a, a fan standpoint of like your work <laughs> and everything like that. This was just good for me to kind of talk with you and get your perspective on some things, particularly about, you know, the whole diversity and tech angle, because, you know, like I said, you are someone that is kind of highly visible in that space. Yeah. And I was just always curious, like being <laughs> in that being in that space, like what is it like to be there and still work knowing that you're like, I don't want to say the exception to the rule, but it's it's such a. Like you said, it's a weird place to be. It's a very, and I, I think you really kind of articulated well what that's like and the kind of change that you want to see through the work that you do. So, no, this was good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, I appreciate thank you it for having me. I really appreciate it. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Justin Edmund, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Justin and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. When it comes to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have great in-depth reporting, new and improved autoresponder features. I mentioned those at the top of the show. And you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code SPREADLOVE at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll even read your review right here on the show, just like I did Jay Diane Riffles at the top of the show. Thanks again so much for leaving that review. Oh, and don't forget about our holiday gift guide contest. Go to revisionpath.com, click the banner at the top of the page, and check that out. That contest is going to end on December 15th. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level start at just $1 per month and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.